Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. I want to play for you a sermon from my series I did on mental health not too long ago. I did eight weeks on mental illness. I talked about everything from anxiety, depression, burnout, uh, even to a sermon on suicide. And one of the things that I found over the two months that this series took was the desire and the need for conversations about this in church. Uh, what I found was the high number of people that have a direct and personal connection to mental illness and mental health struggles. What I found was so many of us want to hear more about this. And so I wanted to share this with y'all. Uh, this is week one of the series. And if there's anything that I know to be true is that many of us struggle with mental illness and mental health. And I think that there is something unique that Christianity has to offer. I think there's something that Jesus has to say to it where it's not the typical just pray it away, um, which isn't helpful. And it's also not the overly sterile conversations on mental illness, which don't bring into the table, into the conversations, the, the spirit or the soul. And I, I think our spirituality has a central role and an important role to play in mental illness. So I want to share this with y'all. This is the first week in the series. And anyway, I hope you find it meaningful. I want to say thanks again for listening to the show. Appreciate y'all. And without further ado, here it is. So at uh, the previous church that I served, the worship leaders that typically led were two different friends of mine who were both Baptist guys, and they would kind of rotate in and out. And when they weren't leading our church, they did their kind of full-time job, which was traveling around being Baptist worship leaders at summer camps or weekend retreats, which in the Baptist world, they call those disciple nows, D-nows. And uh, every time that I would go with them and serve at a disciple now, I felt a lot of pressure. It's like, make them a disciple right now. Like, it was just a lot of pressure at these disciple nows. And one of the things that made it so weird to me is that on multiple different disciple nows that I went to, after I would talk, they would have... An illusionist. And if you don't know what an illusionist is, that is just Baptist for magician. They just can't call them. It's a magician. That's what it is. Anyway, uh, I don't know why they do that, but they did. And so at one of these disciple nows, one of my friends, Jared, was leading. I wasn't there. And it was the end of the night, and this illusionist was doing this trick. And the trick was this. There was a table, and on the table, there was a large railroad tie, a big, long nail. And the illusionist put three brown paper bags on the table. One of them covered the long six-inch nail, and the other two covered nothing. I don't know what the magic trick was. I don't know what he was trying to accomplish. I don't know if he was trying to say, hey, if Jesus was as magical as me, he wouldn't have gotten, I don't know what he was saying. I don't get it. I wasn't there. But he was going through one at a time, and he was going to smash the bag down with his hand. He did the first one, smashed it down. The whole crowd was, ah, and there was nothing in it. He went to do the second one, and as he told the story later, he said, I, I don't know why, but I knew to not go to bag number two, but to go to bag number three, but he didn't communicate that to his hand. And so he smashed down, not an empty bag, but he smashed his hand through a six-inch nail on the stage in front of the church. 
I know we're supposed to be Christ-like in front of the church, but maybe that's a little bit much. Anyway, so he had this six-inch nail going through his hand at this church event. And as anyone would, everyone was freaking out. Like, what do you do when someone just impales himself in church? And so my friend Jared gets him, and they're, they're taking him to the hospital, which is the right move. But someone from the church wanted to do something and ran up and said, hey, 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 this is what you need. This is what you need. This is what you need. And she pulls from behind her back a Mountain Dew and says, here, drink this. And I don't know what's in Mountain Dew, and maybe there are some narcotics. I would probably believe that. But she didn't know what to do, and so the solution was, here, drink a Mountain Dew. That's the solution to the problem. Sometimes in church, we don't know what to say because the problem is something in front of us that we've never experienced before. And so the solutions we come up with are as helpful as saying, hey, drink a Mountain Dew. Today we're starting a series talking about mental health. And unfortunately, the church has far too often had solutions that are as effective as drinking a can of sugar. And it's tough to talk about in church. I'm not a mental health expert. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a therapist. And so I'm uncomfortable talking about this because this is outside of my lane. But we've got to talk about it because it's here. We had a survey in which some 200-plus people from Westover participated. And what we found is that it, it's here. Now, here's the, the first graph I'm going to show you. Of the 200-plus people that participated, almost 200 said they know someone who has struggled with mental illness in the last 12 months. Just about everyone knows someone affected by mental illness. But it's not just we know someone else who's affected by it, but it's, it's us. It's here. here. Let's go to the next graph. Let's put this one up on the big screen so you can see a little bit clearer. Burnout and stress in the last 12 months. 130-some people So that's me. Worry or anxiety, 140 of us said, so that's, that's me. Self-esteem, issues, 80 plus. Anger, 60. Isolation and loneliness, 80. Grief, sadness, a little bit less. Some form of trauma. And this last one, have thoughts about suicide or self-harm. Suicidal ideation. That's us and here. And so we can't act like mental illness is a question or a conversation from someone out there when it's, it's right here. And my second biggest fear about this series is me stepping outside of my lane and saying something that I don't really have expertise on. I'm afraid of that. But the only thing I'm more afraid about is what happens if we continue to not talk about this. You've been a part of Westover for four years. You remember what took place four years ago, where we had one of our beloved members, our friend, family member, Greg Watts, who was also one of our elders, whose life ended in suicide. Because mental illness does not discriminate. And just because you're a Christian, and just because you're a Christian leader even, doesn't mean you're immune from mental illness. 
So we can't not talk about mental illness. And also, we have to talk about it because I think Jesus has a word for all of us. I think Jesus has something to say to us about mental illness. The text for today is from Matthew 11. And so if you're physically able, would you stand out of respect for the reading of God's word? Jesus said, come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Jesus says, all of you that are weary, that you're carrying heavy burdens, come to me, because I will give you rest. Just take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Learn my teaching, and I will give rest for your souls. And if you're carrying a heavy burden, and if you're weary from anxiety, from self-esteem issues, from isolation, from depression, from suicidal ideations. Hearing Jesus say, I have a yoke for you to carry, might seem like the last thing that you want. This metaphor of a yoke goes back to agriculture. This is the, the device that you would put on a, a horse or a mule or an oxen. And it was commonly used 2,000 years ago as a metaphor for the teaching of a rabbi. And so when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, he's saying, be my student. I have something to teach you if you are exhausted, if you're overwhelmed, if you're burdened by stress. Jesus says, I, I have a teaching for you that will bring rest to your soul. And you think about Jesus' teaching, his teaching about forgiving, his teaching about finding your, your purpose, your meaning by seeking first the kingdom of God. His teaching about not being isolated. His teaching about being humble. And Jesus says, my yoke will help you find rest. It'll help you find rest for your soul. Because the teachings of Jesus are not the road away from mental health, but they are the road towards wellness. When you follow the teachings of Jesus towards humility, Jesus' words about humbling yourself might be the very vehicle that enables you to say, I need help. I need to go to therapy. I need to go to a doctor. I need to start taking medication. Jesus' teaching on not being isolated but being in community might be the very vehicle for you to learn how to share those burdens that you're carrying alone. Jesus' teaching on forgiveness might be the very vehicle to teach you to release the resentment that is wrecking your soul. And so what we're going to try to do in this series is I'm not going to try to say that I'm some mental health expert, but what I am going to try to say is that mental health can be received as a blessing from God for you to find rest for your soul. And that Jesus is the giver, and Jesus is the one who gives every good 
and perfect gift. So don't be afraid to receive them. Amen? My dad grew up in Dallas, and his church back in Dallas was upset, or at least some people at his church were upset, when he went off to college as a Bible major, but decided to switch his major to psychology. My dad eventually became a psychology professor and retired from teaching at ACU a few years ago. But when his church back home, at some of them at least, heard that he was switching from being a Bible major to being a psych major, some communicated that they felt like he was going off to the world. Now that's not something Christians are supposed to study or to receive help from. Some of you have experienced that sort of indoctrination. And what that does is it heaps guilt and shame on us when we open ourselves up to the resources of mental illness and mental health. Uh, a couple years ago, I did a sermon which I interviewed uh, a few people, including Mary Culp. And Mary Culp uh, had a few words to say about her experience, which was not too different from my dad's experience. So take a second and watch this interview with Mary Culp, please. Well, I think, uh, you know, early on, I, I kept thinking if I would read my Bible more, if I would pray more, that I could get a handle on this and not need that sort of help anymore. And it, that was one of the things that took me a long time to get past, to see that it wasn't uh, really a spiritual issue that I could do something about. And also to realize that I had family members that had this problem, too, and it's kind mm -hmm. of a family family thing. But I... Well, I think a guilt, guilt mm. that I was not able to fix this thing and mm. that I, I couldn't, um, I don't know, I just thought I should be able to do life and not, if I trusted God, I shouldn't have to have this issue in my life. That's not an attitude that's just unique to her or just to us, not just our tradition in Christianity. I had a conversation a couple years ago with uh, a minister from the Pentecostal tradition. And he said that one Wednesday night, he did a sermon as the worship pastor. And he said in the sermon that not only does he take medication for his mental illness, but that God supports anyone who is open to receiving God's blessing through medication for mental illness. He said that was the most downloaded sermon that his church has ever had because it was a message that had never been communicated before. And so let me say this very clearly up front. There were doctors at the time that the New Testament was written. Doctors existed when Jesus was around, and Jesus and no New Testament writer ever told someone to not receive help from a doctor, whether it was an issue from the neck down or the neck up. The Bible is not against mental health resources like medication or therapy. God cares about the physical. There's a story in 1 Kings 19 where there's a prophet named Elijah. And it doesn't say that Elijah was depressed, but I would think it would be almost impossible to read the story and not realize that that is Elijah's situation. Because what he's found is that life is a lot harder than he thought it was going to be. He was called to do one thing, and it went well, and then he was called to do another thing, and it became much more problematic. And his response was to go in the wilderness and ask for God to take his life from him. 
let me read this to you from First Kings 19. But he, Elijah, hid, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. He looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights, to Horeb, the mountain of God. At that place, he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah is in despair, so much so that he says, God, would you just take my life away from me? I'm no better than anyone before me. And they were all a mess. My life's a mess. Just take it away from me. And what God doesn't do, God doesn't say, just pray more. Just pray it away. God doesn't say that. God gives him food and drink and rest. He eats, he sleeps, he eats, he sleeps. God's response is not to just talk about the, quote, spiritual, but to deal with the physical, the material world. Now we know things a little bit more about brain chemistry including the chemical serotonin, which is connected to our sleep, but also serotonin is connected by most assumptions to conditions such as depression, anxiety, mania, and others. And so sleeping isn't just this thing that occasionally you should do if you have time, but it's deeply important for our health. And God's response to Elijah in his despair is helping the physical. Sleep, this is good for you. And then he has the strength to go do what God called him to do. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 5. This is a verse that, for some reason, I didn't hear a lot in Sunday school growing up. Maybe if I was Episcopalian. No, um, I'm still here. No longer drink only water, but take a little wine for the sake of of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Paul says, here's something that would be good for your physical self. Receive this resource. Now, I don't think many medical professionals would now say that alcohol of any kind is actually beneficial for you physically. Don't argue with me, you wine lovers. I'm, you're probably wrong. Um, but I'm not saying it's a sin. I'm just saying it's probably not physically the best thing for you. I don't think most modern science is going to say this, but I think the principle here that Paul is talking about is saying there are resources available to you in the physical. Don't be afraid to receive them as a gift from God. The principle is that the physical and the spiritual are not in opposition to each other. They can be together. That there's an intersection there. That matters to God. Kurt Thompson is a psychiatrist who works 
also at the intersection of not just neurology, but also spiritual formation. And so he has a really unique voice as a medical doctor who's also trained and studied in spiritual formation. And this is the psychiatrist, Kurt Thompson, talking about how God cares about the material. So watch this, please. To the real events that are taking place in the world about the progression of, of science and so forth. And, and I think that what, what's been beautiful uh, for this is this whole notion that when you actually read the Bible, uh, the Bible itself on the page is the Bible you find, first of all, that um, when you read the first two pages, the first thing that you see, if, you, if one were to ask, well, um, what is God like when you read the first two pages of the Bible, we, we see that, like, well, it, it, it doesn't so much begin to teach theology, as although it does do that. The first thing it shows us is that God is an artist. And what artists do, artists work with the material world. That's what they do. They work with the material world. And uh, when you get then to the first page of Paul's letters to the church at Rome, you read that from the beginning, people have known about God's nature and his power. How? Through the creation, through the material world. That's how we come to sense anything. The, uh, some who would consider him to be the, 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 the most important one of the most important Catholic theologians of the 20th century, uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, said, you know, first, before we think about what is true, you first actually have to have a sensory encounter with it. That beauty precedes truth because, as it turns out, this is how our brains operate as well. First, I sense things, and only then do I make sense of what I sense. All this comes together when it then comes to neuroscience and spiritual formation because... We, what, we, what we discover is that when we pay attention to the way the mind works in the material world, it, it teaches us about how the mind operates from a mechanical standpoint. The mechanics of the mind, we, you know, science can tell us things that are really helpful and important. It doesn't tell us about meaning, but it tells us about mechanics. And once we have a sense of mechanics, uh, we find that we can begin to apply work that actually affects my sense of my relationship with God. Um, and so... Science can teach us of the mechanisms of how the material world works, including your brain, as Dr. Thompson would say. Science doesn't speak about meaning. That is a metaphysical, a beyond physics question. But the material, it's there. And God, as an artist, deals with the material. God created the world and said it was good. And so why do we think that God wouldn't want our physicality to also be good. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, but also with all of your mind. All of your mind. It matters to God. So no longer do we need to think that just because we have a mental illness that God is judging us or we should just pray it away. We shouldn't do that. Now, what I'm going to say next I need you to first be on board with what I just said. Because if you like what I say next, but you didn't appreciate what I've been saying for the last 15 minutes, you're going to miss the point. This is kind of like Monopoly. If you don't pass go, you get no $200. Like, if you're not on board with that, then please don't say, hey, I like that second half of your sermon, but not the first. Because the second half doesn't like you if you don't like the first half, okay? <laughs> Caveat right there. Richard Beck is the chair of psychology at Abilene Christian University. He's an elder at the Highland Church of Christ. He's preached at Westover a couple years ago. And in his book, Hunting Magic Eels, he tells of a conversation he has with his father. 
And the conversation takes place on a golf course. Golf, speaking of mental illnesses, uh, <laughs> is where they're having this conversation. The conversation is Richard's father's perception that part of the problem right now is that people, especially young people, don't desire God. And so this is Richard's response. So what Dr. Beck writes is this. But I disagreed. I actually think young people do desire God. I shared while slicing another, that's golf talk, whatever. Um, they just don't know it. They call this desire anxiety, depression, or loneliness. Everywhere you look in America, you see this longing for God. You see it in rising rates of suicide and addiction. People are in pain. But we've lost the ability to correctly name and diagnose the hurt. The only language young people have for God is the language of mental illness. When they say anxiety or depression, they are expressing a desire for God. Hear this part. Speaking as a psychologist, I wasn't suggesting to my dad or to you that severe mental illness can quickly be fixed by, quote unquote, coming to Jesus. What I'm pointing out is how very unwell we are as a society. The evidence is everywhere. As I've said, rates of suicide, anxiety, depression, loneliness, and addiction are all on the rise, especially among young people. So we have to ask, what's causing us so much pain? Why is there so much hurt? Why is everyone feeling so anxious, unsettled, and fragile in this skeptical age? Dr. Beck's answer of why there's so much of this in this skeptical age is because there's so much skepticism in what he calls a disenchanted world. Meaning there's no longer an understanding that God is present. We've disenchanted. We've moved God out of the equation. In some ways, the, the pendulum has swung from a previous generation that said, no, just pray away your mental illness, to a, the next generation which says, no, I, we understand mental illness is a real thing. We know anxiety and depression and addiction and loneliness. But the pendulum has swung away so that God isn't part of the equation anymore. We've gotten rid of the idea that we can just pray away mental illness to the point that we've almost gotten rid of prayer. And when you have a hammer in your hand, and the hammer is the language of mental illness, everything looks like a nail. And we've forgotten that there is an extreme on either side that when you silo one away from the other, things don't work well. Dr. Thompson, the psychiatrist, who said science can't talk about meaning. Science can talk about the physical world, but the metaphysical, the beyond physical, the questions of meaning and purpose, that's not the world of science. That's the world of religion. That's the world of spirituality. And when you remove the conversation about meaning, other things start to fall apart. Viktor Frankl, as a Holocaust survivor, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, which he talks about how if you have a meaning, if you have a purpose, you can endure many things. He obviously is talking about enduring the Holocaust. But he translates that for most of us who go through adversity, maybe not that extreme, of course. But if you have a meaning, if you have a purpose to get through it, your ability to withstand it, is drastically different. And let me go back to what uh, Richard Beck will say next about this. He says, if Frankel, Victor Frankel, is right, and I think he is, 
that meaning is vital for mental health and well-being, we have to face the truth that meaning is fragile in our disenchanted age, meaning an age that God isn't part of the equation anymore, which means that our mental health is going to be fragile as well. This is perhaps the biggest source driving the ache. Without God, we have to construct meaning out of thin air. All on our own, we cobble together some reasons to get out of bed each morning, some excuse we tell ourselves to make our daily pains and struggles, quote, meaningful. To use the language of scripture, this is an attempt to live by bread alone. Elijah is in the wilderness. He needs bread. That's part of how God heals him. He sleeps. He eats. That's good for him. But it can't just be that. Jesus, when he goes in the wilderness, in Matthew chapter 4, he experiences a temptation. And these are the words of scripture about Jesus' temptation. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes the words of the Old Testament. When the Israelites, when they were in the wilderness, Scripture said that they were given manna. And they received this manna every day as a way to remind them that no one lives by bread alone, but by the words of God. That is what we need. It's not either or, it's both Together, And if it's just bread, then we're always going to be struggling with the metaphysical questions of meaning and purpose. And if we've been just told just to pray it away, then we're going to miss the physical, the bread, which is important. Paul will say this in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Physical training is of some value. Your physical training, sleeping, eating, getting mental health treatment. Counseling, medication, these things have value. They're important. Godliness is valuable in every way, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Both of them together have something to offer. And so what we have to learn how to do is to live in the tension of both together. Because God wants you to love God with all of your heart and your mind, and your soul, and your strength. Which means moving away from some of these sort of like simplistic answers for how to fix these problems. Parker Palmer uh, has a PhD in sociology, and he also is someone who lives in the world of spirituality. Uh, He's a part of the Christian tradition known as the Quakers. And Parker Palmer um, lived through a very dark depression uh, to the point where he himself had suicidal ideations. And he writes uh, in his book, Let Your Life Speak, about how he just doesn't, doesn't know why some people get better and some don't. Because I don't know why. I can tell you what I did to help me survive and what I did to help me thrive. I, I really don't, I don't know. And so he has this conversation with a woman who's asking the question, why? Why do I have these thoughts? Why am I depressed? 
And as I continue to try to point to those who are actually trained in this, let me read this conversation between uh, Dr. Palmer and this woman. This is Parker Palmer's uh, description of this conversation. Do we have a previous quote? Is there, I think we might have jumped over one. Nope. Do we have one before? We don't, Jesse? Okay, go back to that last one. Let me... Um, so she goes up to him and she asks, how come some people get better and others don't? How come some people have these suicidal ideations and they get better and some don't? And what Palmer says is, I, I don't really know. I don't, I don't have an answer for it. I don't have a solution as to why some people get better and some don't. And then he's perplexed because... He didn't feel like he said the right thing, which is experience many of us know what it's like. For those 90 plus percent who said, yeah, I do have a friend who's had mental health illness, and they, they talk to you about it, and you don't know exactly what to say. He felt the same way. I don't know if I said the right thing or not, because I didn't give a concrete answer. I didn't give a black and white response. And then this is what happens next. A few days later, she sent me a letter saying that of all the things that we talked about, the words that stayed with her were, I have no idea. My response had given her an alternative to the cruel Christian explanations common in the church to which she belonged. That people who take their lives lack faith or good works or some other redeeming virtue that might move God to rescue them. My not knowing had freed her to stop judging herself for being depressed and to stop believing that God was judging her. As a result, her depression had lifted a bit. So the first thing he did was he said, you need to take this God is judging you because you have mental illness thought off the table. This is the first part of the sermon. Like he says, once she stopped feeling like God was mad at her because she had mental health illnesses, it, it was the beginning. Let's keep going to the next part of the quote. Palmer says this, depression demands that we reject simplistic answers, both religious and scientific, and learn to embrace mystery, something our culture resists. Mystery surrounds every deep experience of the human heart. The deeper we go into the heart's darkness or its light, the closer we get to be ultimate mystery of God. But our culture wants to turn mysteries into puzzles to be explained or problems to be solved because maintaining the illusion that we can, quote, straighten things out makes us feel powerful. Embracing the mystery of depression does not mean passivity or resignation. It means moving into a field of forces that seems alien but is, in fact, one's deepest self. It means waiting, watching, listening, suffering, and gathering whatever self-knowledge one can, and then making choices based on that knowledge, no matter how difficult. One begins the slow walk back to health by choosing each day things that enliven one's selfhood and resisting things that do not. Simple answers about deeply complex things like mental illness don't help anyone. But learning to see... The world is far more enchanted than maybe we're tempted to believe that God is here with us might be the beginning of the road through it. 
Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when you experience the poverty of spirit, feeling depressed, feeling like there's no reason to keep on going, it's a blessing. When you experience the poverty of spirit, of being overwhelmed by anxiety, there might be some blessing. When you experience the poverty of spirit, of feeling isolated, feeling burnt out, feeling anger, I humbly say there might be blessing. To quote the message again today, Eugene Peterson paraphrases this section and says, You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more room for God and God's will. When you experience the poverty of spirit of mental illness, when you're at the end of your rope, there is a blessing because you can find God there. And what you find is a God who's not against you, a God who's for you, providing you your daily bread to get through one day. But we don't live just by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth God, that is what sustains us. So as we begin this series, talking about mental illness, what I hope you hear first and foremost is the stigma that the church has often had about mental illness is just flat out from the devil. You are not alone if you struggle with it. If you are the some 15 people who said that I have suicidal ideations, thank you for your bravery. Thank you for speaking up and telling others in this room that you are not alone. And any shame you feel for that is not from God. You have brothers and sisters in this room who are in the same struggle with you. You're not alone. The second thing I want to tell you is that Jesus is not against your mental wellness. Jesus can be the very vehicle to help you on the road to dealing with with your anxiety, with your depression, with your addiction, with your loneliness, with your anger, and even with your suicidal ideations. It's an encouragement I give to you. Would you be open to the yoke that Jesus has, that Jesus' teaching can be the way for you to experience rest? And we're not just going to pray it away in some sort of dismissive statement about mental illness and even prayer itself. But instead, we're going to see this as a way that God points us to the resources that are available to us. So would you receive the teachings of Jesus today? In a few minutes, we're going to have those who serve go back and pass out communion. In a few minutes after I pray, they're going to go to the back and serve. And when that happens, we're going to receive the bread and the cup. Because one of the things that we do as a church is that we wait and receive this all together as a family. And this is what I would like for you to think about. As you're holding the bread, which represents the body of Jesus, and the cup, which represents the blood of Jesus, that you are holding the body and blood of Jesus, but also you're holding, in some ways, the the teaching, the yoke, the life of Jesus. And as you hold this, may you remember that Jesus is here to give you rest. And if your soul is anxious and overwhelmed and heavy burdened, Jesus is for you. So as you hold the body and the blood of Jesus, may you remember that Jesus is trying to hold you. So don't run away from Jesus, but run towards him.
Let's pray. God, my prayer this morning is for those who are heavy burdened, who are exhausted, who are tired, who are anxious, who are fearful, who are alone, who are depressed, who are burnt out, that they would know that your teaching is good for them. Your way of life, because everyone has a way of life, but your way of life is the one that leads to life and life abundant. And that your teaching can lead to rest. And maybe that teaching leads them to have humility to go and ask someone for help, to go to a doctor, to go to a friend, go to a therapist. And maybe it means simply being at peace with the fact they have anxiety. They have depression. They might have these thoughts and they might have these feelings, but our truest self is you. And you love us and carry us through life even as we have mental illness. So now as we receive the bread and the cup, may we remember that receiving you is the road to rest. We pray this in the name of the crucified Savior.